So as we return to John's gospel, uh, we do so with something that's unique to John's gospel. Uh, You know there are four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar. They call them the synoptic gospels because they are very similar. John's different. Uh, John's the latest gospel. And what, what John's gospel is, is it's taking the, um, the gospel accounts, the historical narrative of Jesus. And since it's, a, it's, it's, it's the latest gospel, there is time to process the life of Jesus, process the meaning of the life of Jesus, and to tell the story with theological nuance. Things that Jesus said when um, in the immediate presence of the, of, of the gospel writers, the apostles, um, that they didn't really put together. Well, by this time in the story, they do understand, or at least have a greater understanding. And so as John tells the story, he tells it as, a, as, as someone who's reflecting back on the story, as almost a commentary to the gospels. And nowhere does that come out, that theological nuancing come out more than the Trinitarian theology, which is rich and robust within the gospel of John. And so what happened is I was was writing my sermon uh, this week. I came to these first two verses and they were just going to be my first point and then I was going to apply it to the the 35 and I just gave up uh, because um, it's as rich um, my, my, the, the, those verses are as rich and theologically dense as you're going to find in the gospel. So I said, you know what, let's just, take, let's just take one week and look at these two verses and do our best to plunge the mystery of the Trinity. Let me uh, set the stage this way by making sure we all understand what we're talking about here. Um, if you're new to the claims of Christianity or if you've been a Christian for a long time and never had anybody articulate it out this way, let me set the stage, and then, and then we'll look at the passage. Christians believe that God exists as one God in three persons. That's what you said in your confession of faith with Westminster. You can't beat that statement that we said. One God, three persons. That does not mean that God is divided up into three parts, like a pie chart, where the Father is a third, and the Son is a third, and the Spirit is a third. That would be wrong. That is not a proper understanding of the Trinity. The Father is the whole. The Son is the whole. The Spirit is the whole. Each person is fully God. It also does not mean that the Father... um, It does not mean that um, God chooses to be the Father at some times, fully the Father sometimes, chooses to be the Son at some times, chooses to be the Spirit, as though God takes on three different... The word is modalities, three different modes. So like the classic illustration of the Trinity as being water, ice, and mist. Uh, That's a heretical illustration. That is not how God operates. He is not one person and then he chooses to be another person. He is not split up into three parts and he does not move in out of three different modes. God is at all times fully one existing in three persons. The math of the Trinity is one plus one plus one equals one. You understand that, right? You get it? That that God is, that the Father is God, that the Son is God, that the Spirit is God, but the Father is not the Son and the Spirit. The Son is not the Father and the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father and Son. Got it? It's easy, right? You should be confused. You should say, I don't get it. I can't understand that. That's the way it works. 
it is impossible to fully comprehend the Trinity, and I like my God that way. There is a word that's lost in our age of enlightenment where there's just this need to understand and comprehend everything. The word is inscrutability. It's a loss. It's an attribute that we have lost. Inscrutability means you cannot scrutinize it. You cannot understand it. God is inscrutable. When it comes to the Trinity, when it comes to uh, divine sovereignty and man responsibility, when it comes to Jesus, the incarnate, being fully God and fully man, don't try to comprehend. You can't. And any attempt to fix the mystery leads to a heresy and a cult. Every time. Let the mystery stand. But it's okay. Because you should want a God like that. It only makes sense. This is why I tell people, it only makes sense that our God does not make sense. As soon as your God starts to make sense, it means that God, somebody has invented your God. But having said that, the mystery of the Trinity, it does, however, allow Christianity some unique things about our doctrine of God. Christianity is able to retain a monotheistic God without the classic problems of the monotheistic God. Let me explain. True classic apologetics will, will show and prove that there has to be one singular, eternal, immortal agent behind all things. That's what classic apologetics will lead you to. Something is behind everything. That singular source of all things, eternal source of all things, what the Greeks called the logos. This classic thing is the monotheistic vision of God. That's who God is. What is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable, and these attributes. Okay, he's the... And that monotheistic vision of God means that God does all things for his own glory. A God who loves himself above all things. He has to be this. He has to be this, or he's an idolater. If this God of all existence loved me more than himself, he would be an idolater. I'm not worthy of love over God. If this God were to love creation over himself, it would be idolatrous. It is not worthy of creation. God, God is the only person where it is right, the only existence where it is right to love and glorify yourself above all things. And classic monotheistic religions, us, Islam and Judaism understand that concept. But here's the problem with monotheistic theology, okay? Is he therefore the grand narcissist in the sky? Is he this self-obsessed deity who creates to feed his own self-obsession? Well, the Trinity, with all of its mystery and inscrutability the Trinity actually brings clarity and order to that dilemma. A God who glorifies himself and a God who loves himself, but his love is at the same time a relational love. God loves himself, but also loves another. God glorifies himself, but also seeks the glory of another. God is simultaneously a self-exalting God and an other exalting God. A God who is humble and glorious. So in this way, God can glorify himself and love himself, and yet that love is a self-sacrificing relational love. That's what we're talking about this morning. 
I'm telling you up front. Somebody came through um, afterwards and said, whoa, that was a lot. And I'm just going to tell you up front, yes, you're going to have to put on your theology caps this morning. And, and uh, it's one of those sermons. But it's only that because I'm trying to be faithful to the text. I mean, th- these verses are as rich as you can find. And I'm going to divide them two ways, okay? There's a long introduction. We'll move, on, we'll move quickly now. Two ways. Verse 31, we're going to see the Son's love for the Father's glory. Verse 32, we're going to see the Father's love for the Son's glory. And then we will apply it. We will not let this turn into a lecture this morning. We will apply. The Son's love for the Father's glory. Verse 31. When he had gone out, let me remind you, that's Judas. We left off with Judas leaving. When he had gone out, that represents a significant transition Not just in the upper room discourse, but in the gospel of John as a whole. Judas has gone out to betray Jesus, to set off the chain of events that will end with the cross. Meaning, essentially, this is what the, when he went out, is supposed to communicate. It's go time. There is no turning back now. Calvary is near, and it's just Jesus and his remaining 11 disciples. The community has been purified. It's Jesus and his 11 disciples, from here, the discourse will have the weighty feel of a man's final words to his closest friends. And they begin with these deep, profound, mysterious words. Let's look at them. Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. My goodness. It is not an exaggeration to say that sentence might be the richest, most dense sentence Jesus said on earth. Let's let's do our best to work with it. Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified. Don't take that now as literally in this moment now, but as in now is the time. Like I said, Judas has gone out, which means it's time for Jesus to die. And that is what he is referencing here. We know that. He's talking about his death. But the reference is strange, isn't it? Why? Because he calls it glorified. The cross seems to be the opposite of glory. So why is he calling it his glory? Calvary was and is the greatest moment of shame. But that is why it was and is the greatest moment of glory. And we know Jesus is talking about this paradox because he references himself as the son of man here. In the Old Testament, the Son of Man was associated with the glory of the coming Messiah. But when Jesus uses the term in the gospel, it is almost exclusively talking about the suffering of the Messiah. And that change that he makes is intentional. The surprise of the Messiah is that the glory of the Son of Man is revealed in the suffering of the Son of Man. The greatest moment of his suffering which consequently becomes the greatest moment of his glory, is the cross. But why? We still haven't answered why. Why is his most shameful act his most glorious act? Continue on. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. The reason why the Son's shame is glorious is because it is the Father's glory. In it, in his shame, in his cross, the Father is glorified. The Son died for the Father's glory. First and foremost, before the cross is for you, the cross is for the Father. You and I are benefactors of the cross, no doubt. We are saved by the cross, no doubt. 
The cross is our only boast. It is our hope. It is our salvation. But the cross is not our glory. The cross is our shame. The cross was for the glory of the Father. It was never about us. How so? Think back on our Advent series, okay? All God's promises find their yes in Christ. We saw how every promise that God made was fulfilled in the coming of Christ. Well, what happens to the promises without Christ? If if all God's promises find their yes in Christ, then what happens without Christ? All God's promises find their no. The promises fail. And God is a liar without Jesus. God's covenant to Abraham, Moses, David that we looked at, and all of the blessings therein, his love, his mercy, his grace, his protection, his forgiveness, his very salvation, everything that he promises falls apart without Jesus, which means God is a liar without Jesus. When the Father promised and covenanted, when he made a covenant, all the way back to Genesis 3.15 when he did this, When he did this, he was putting his glory on the line. If he cannot make good on his promises, his glory fails and God is not God. So in the name of the Father's glory, the Son comes to make good on all God's promises. But there's a catch. The only way to do that is through the cross. All of God's promises ultimately find their yes in Christ, but most specifically, the cross of Christ. So in this way, the Father's glory is dependent upon the Son's suffering. Will the Son bear shame for the Father's fame? Is He willing to suffer to the depths of uttermost? For the Father's glory to the heights of others. Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, now is time. I will glorify my Father. The Son loves the Father with an eternal, unchanging, inexhaustible love. God the Son loves God the Father. A love so fierce that he actually counts it his joy to bear the shame that will glorify the Father. The moment God covenants with sinners, the horrific fate of the Son was sealed. But the Son delights to suffer His fate because His suffering will vindicate the Father's glory and He loves nothing more than the Father's glory. Nothing is more important to the Son than the glory of the Father. Oh, how the Son loves the Father. But this love is not one-sided. It is a mutual love. It is a relational love at the heart of the Trinity. Let's turn now to verse 32 and see the Father's love for the Son's glory. I know again that this language is very dense. Follow along though. Watch as Jesus changes what I would say the the triune focus here. But if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him. Jesus referring to himself here in the third person, so it's tough. It will help if I state it in the first person. So Jesus speaking, if God is glorified in me, God will also glorify me. If he's glorified in me, he will glorify me. 
Simply put, here's what he's saying, it's the Father's turn to glorify the Son. The Son expresses His love by dying for the Father's glory, and in response, the Father will express His love by glorifying the Son. How so? The Son dies to glorify the Father. What will the Father do to glorify the Son? Well, Jesus has switched here to the future tense. So we know he's thinking beyond the immediacy of the cross. He's saying, the time is now for me to be glorified, and now he's speaking in future tense, but not too far, right? Because he qualifies it there at the end of verse 32 by saying that God will glorify him at once. So he's going to do something, but he's not going to do something like way in the future to glorify me. He's going to do something right after. The Father is going to do something immediately following the cross that will glorify the Son. You know what it is before I even say it, don't you? God will raise him from the dead. To us, the resurrection is just a given. Yeah, cross resurrection, of course he raised. But you need to know that for Jesus, particularly in his, again, mystery, in his humanity, fully human, that was not a given. This was not easy. Do you remember his final word from the cross before he died? Father... Into your hands I commit my spirit. Do you ever wonder what that was all about? Into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. And then it says, with that he breathed his last. What a profound statement from the second person of the Trinity. He knew the plan. Of course he knew the plan. He is fully God. He understands the plan and he understands the plan will come to pass. But still... The plan required unreserved trust in the Father. Jesus closes his eyes in death, trusting that the Father can do what he has promised to do, trusting that the Father will rescue him from the hell of humanity's judgment, trusting that the Father will vindicate him from the shame of the cross and the tomb. Jesus falls in sl- asleep trusting that the Father will wake him up. Into your hands, I commit my spirit, and then he dies. The Father trusts the Son to die for his glory. The Son trusts the Father to raise him from that death for his glory. And out of the depths of shame and misery and humiliation and judgment and wrath and destruction, the Father rescues the Son and raises Him from the dead. Again, like the cross, we tend to make the resurrection all about us, and that's not necessarily wrong. The resurrection is indeed your only hope and your destiny And yes, apply it to your life. We are recipients of the infinite blessings of the resurrection. But just like the cross was first and foremost about the Father's glory, the resurrection is first and foremost about the Son's glory. The resurrection was His rescue. The resurrection was His vindication and glorification from the lowest shame to the highest glory. You see, the resurrection was just the beginning of the Son's glory. Oh, how the Father loves the Son. Oh, how the Father loves the Son's glory. He raises Him, but not only that, He exalts Him to the right hand to sit upon the throne until His enemies are made a footstool and hands Him all authority and power and glory to rule and reign as King forevermore to come again in all of His glory so that the entire cosmos worships Jesus forevermore. 
Jesus went from the outcast of heaven on the cross. <laughs> and then in one moment, the glory of heaven in his resurrection and ascension. So that henceforth, it's now all about Jesus. The Father has ordained that it's all about the Son. His glory, His fame, it's all about Jesus Christ. Our vision statement says that we exist for the glory of Christ. We single Him out because we think the Father has singled Him out. All things exist for His glory. We think it makes the Father happy that we have singled out the glory of Jesus Christ. This whole sermon was preached much better by the Apostle Paul. I suppose I could have saved us a lot of time and just read this. Philippians 2. Now, having said everything we said thus far, okay? That was a lot. Thank you. We're, we're, thank you for hanging with me there. Now, having said all that we said, listen now to the familiar words that you know from Philippians 2. Though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. That, 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 the Greek there is to be held on to. He let it go. He let his Trinitarian riches go. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That descent, that humiliation, all was for the Father's fame. All was for the glory of the Father. He did that to make good on the promises of the Father, but the verse isn't over yet, is it? Do you remember? Therefore, God has highly exalted him and has bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then listen to this, to the glory of the Father. It just brings it back. It's just this... Trinitarian passion to love and glorify himself and the other person. So let me sum up all this theology and then we will apply it. This is not going to remain a theology lecture. We're going to talk about what this means. But let me sum it all up. God is one God in three persons. These persons who eternally love and glorify one another and that commitment overflowed into creation that is invited to do the same. The commitment of love and glory was overflowed into a creation that now invites humanity to love and glorify God with God. But we didn't. We rebelled against the glory of God for our own glory. However, even sinful humanity's rebellion only provided the Trinity an opportunity to display the heights of love and glory. Even our rebellion is a new way to display the glory of God. As the Son's love for the Father's glory led Him to empty Himself unto death on the cross, and the Father's love for the Son's glory led Him to raise Him from the dead, exalt Him, and give Him the name that is above every name. And we haven't even gotten to the Spirit. The behind-the-scenes person of the Trinity. The shy one who loves to exalt the Son, who loves to do the will of the Father. Uh, I'm, I'm going to stop. Chapter 14 is all about him. You think the theology of the, of the Trinity is, just wait till we get to 14. And Jesus starts talking about the, the Spirit and his love for the Helper. That's the theology. Let's talk application. 
Here's the number one application, and I'm just going to say come back next week. Because the number one application is next week, where Jesus essentially says, all right, you've heard about that. Here's my new commandment to you. I want you to be a community that does that well. You've seen how I've loved the Father. You've seen how the Father has loved me. You've seen that self-sacrificing, other-exalting love. I want you to be a community like that. And if you do that, then the world will know me. That's where we're going next week. So the application is a horizontal application. But before then, this week, let's talk vertical application this week. Every single one of you is made in the image of the triune God. Do you know what that means? You were not made to love and glorify yourself. You were made to do what the Trinity does. Love and glorify another, and that person is God. Now, let me speak to, uh, let me speak to those who would not call themselves um, followers of the triune God. Uh, maybe you're checking out the claims of Christianity, and maybe I just, like, you don't even know what to do with what I, you didn't realize, whoa, that's the Christian concept of God? Um, and maybe you're overwhelmed and confused. Let, let me make it a little... A lot more simple for you, okay? Um, and I'm going to do so in the form of an invitation to you. Um, to, I, I would love for you to give your life to the triune God. But let me, let me invite you this way, which you maybe have never had anybody do it this way. I would like to invite you to turn away from the misery of your self-love and self-glorification. Our culture tells you two things. Love yourself Promote yourself. In the gospel, in our therapeutic gospel of self-esteem, you are told that the key to happiness is to find, to, to fall in love with yourself, to love yourself. Love yourself. And you are told in the American um, dream that happiness is found in self-promotion and self-gain. Those are the two narratives. Love yourself, promote yourself. Surely you have noticed how miserable and destructive that philosophy has been. Surely you have noticed how our society is collapsing in on its self-love and self-promotion. Surely you have noticed how vain these pursuits are. Would you consider that you are being lied to? Would you consider that loving yourself is hating yourself and promoting yourself is destroying yourself? Would you consider instead that the way you were designed was by a creator to love and glorify God with every part of you? Now, it's going to be a death. You're going to have to lay down the self-love and self-promotion and say, I exist to love God and to glorify him. And that's a death. But what you'll find on the other side of that death is life. Because that's actually how you were made. You were made not to love and promote yourself. You were made to love and promote God. And so my invitation would be to repent of the miserable life of self-promotion and self-love. And join this commitment of the Trinity. To us who love the triune God of Scripture. I want you to see the commitment of love and glory within the Trinity, and may it give you a newfound commitment to do the same. One of the, one of the, one of the um, 
benefits of plunging mysteries like we've done today is it will give you a newfound appreciation and understanding, which I hope leads to newfound motivations, if that makes sense. I hope it's not just, wow, I never knew those things, and it stays there. I hope it's, whoa, that gives me a much greater love and a much greater commitment. Here's how it would be. Where are you living for yourself instead of God? Where are you living for yourself? Because that's not what God does. Where are you living for yourself instead of God? And by the way, bless his name, the third person of the Trinity is being really faithful right now to do what he does, which is conviction. He'll let you know. Where are you, and it's, you know something, where are you resisting you are living for yourself instead of God. You need to know that is not fitting the people of a triune God. The Trinity is an eternal bond to love and glorify another person. And by grace, you have been invited into that bond. How dare we respond to that invitation with our own self-obsession? How dare we? How dare we respond to the gracious invitation of the Trinity to join him in this eternal love affair by saying, I want it to be about me. How dare we corrupt the eternal commitment of God to love God by our own commitment to love ourselves? See the depths of the love the Son has for the Father. See the depths of the love the Father has for the Son. See your God and be convicted about how much you love and glorify yourself and then apologize to the Trinity and repent. Fight for a life that loves God singularly and glorifies God ultimately, for that is the life of the Trinity. The God who loves himself above all things and does all things for his own glory. Let me pray. Lord, I pray that you would take um, all of that um, rich theology and make it very simple in our hearts and in our lives. And we pray, Spirit, that you would do that. This is, this is where your ministry, your work takes over, Holy Spirit. Come and lead us and disciple us and change us and use what you promised to use, your holy sacrament of communion, that you are mysteriously present to change us. Do this, we pray, in your name. Amen.